Well, good morning. It is uh, it's so good seeing all of you guys as you make your way back to your seat. Go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Um, and as you've noticed, um, next week, Monday is VBS, and so it's a family service. Ignite Wing is closed um, for, for multiple reasons. One of the things that we really do believe here at our church is, is ministering to the family as a whole. And as a pastor, I think it is important for our children to sit in in our services and worship with us and sing with us and sit under the word of God with us. And for the parents with little ones, I know what you're thinking. I am making life more difficult for you because you can't focus and you're going to be stressed out. So I'm making a deal with you, okay? Um, as long as your child is not running up and down the aisles with their shirts off, I'm okay with them being loud. So what we're going to do is don't freak out. Don't stress out. If they yell, I'll just yell louder. So I'm just yelling not because I'm angry, but I'm just drowning out their noise. And I really don't want you guys to be stressed out. What's the worst thing that can happen? They're a little loud. We get over it. Let's just push through it, okay? But I do think it's important for our children to sit under the Word of God. So don't stress out. Just breathe as parents. Um, let me pray for us, and then we're going to get into the Word. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you make yourself known to us and that you speak to us. I thank you for our children, that they can sit here under your word. And I pray that as you speak to us as adults, may you speak to them as children as well. May you make yourself known to them. May you stir our hearts and our affections for you. Overwhelm us, Lord, as parents. Help us not to freak out with how loud our kids are, but help us to be able to focus and get what we need to get from this message. And Lord, may this just be a sweet time together. And we love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Okay. So we're continuing our series as Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And every time he's really writing to them, every issue he's addressing, he's reminding them of who they are in Christ. He's like, hey, you are God's holy people. You've been bought at a price. If all of this is true, I want you to live like it. If you are holy and God has declared you holy, you must become what you are. And so you as a church, as God's holy people, must become more distinct, more different from the world. And when that happens and you mature in purity, you will grow in unity. And so that's my hope for us as a church, that we would become more distinct from the world, that we will become what we are as we're constantly reminded that we are God's holy people, that we've been bought at a price and our identity is is in Jesus Christ and that we will become that. Now, as we look at our text today, um, Paul has continued to address the fifth issue here, um, but this is the matters that the church wrote about, okay? So if we look at chapter seven, verse one, he's, he addresses now in response to the matters you wrote about. Notice the word matters, it's plural, which means they had a lot of things when it comes to questions about marriage and singleness. And I think maybe one of the questions they had has also had to do with divorce. And so Paul's gonna address the issue of 
divorce. But he addresses two groups of people. So as we look at our text, and maybe it will be helpful to have an outline, verses 10 to 11, it's just simply married folks. He's addressing the first group are married folks, and he's going he's gonna to present the ideal situation and then a not-so-ideal situation. And then the second group of people he's going to address is in verses 12 to verses 16, are those Christians who are married to non-Christians. How do they deal with it? What should they be doing? And so Paul is going to address it because it was very common in the ancient world, especially with the spread of Christianity. And then in verse 17 to verse 24, he is going to address everybody, regardless of your life situation, whether you're married or whether you're divorced or in the process of divorce or whether you're married and non-Christian or whether you're single, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're a slave or whether you're free, he gives a general principle for us us to apply to our lives that's rooted into a gospel truth. And so hopefully I'll spend more time camping on that area and unpacking it. But let's look at divorce. Let's look at what Paul says about it in regards to marriage. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 10. He says this, to the married I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So the first group of people that Paul is addressing is the people that are married. Now, as we read the text, I can assume that, oh, maybe that was my question. All of us have this question. Like, what does Paul mean when he uses this phrase, not I, but the Lord commands it? And then if you look at verse 12, he says, but I, not the Lord. Okay, so why is Paul drawing a distinction between what Jesus commands and what Paul commands? Okay, So let's try to answer this and then we get into the text. I think the first thing it is not, Paul is not referring the issue to that of authority. In other words, what Paul's not saying is, hey, Jesus has more authority than me and he's commanding you on this subject and I have more authority than Jesus on this issue so I'm commanding you on this subject. I don't think it has to do with that. Has nothing to do with authority but rather what I think it has to do with is what Jesus has clearly taught and addressed and what Jesus did not clearly taught and addressed. For example... Paul is addressing the issue of divorce among married people in verses 10 and verses 11. Jesus clearly addressed it in his ministry context. He addresses this issue in Matthew 5.32 and in Matthew 19 verse 9. But the issue Paul is addressing in verses 12 to 16 of what Christians do when they're married to non-Christians, did Jesus address that? No, Jesus did not address that. You're like, well, why did Jesus not address it? Well, simple. The primary ministry context that Jesus has, who did Jesus primarily minister to? He ministered to Jews, right? And who did Jews marry? Jews only married Jews. So the issue of being a believer being married to a non-believer never came up in Jesus's ministry context. So the only thing that Jesus addressed in his ministry context was the issue of marriage and divorce. But Paul, on the other hand, who was Paul's primary ministry context? Who did he minister to, Jews or Gentiles? Primarily to Gentiles. And Gentiles who were non-Jews, who did they marry? Non-Gentiles. 
In other words, there are a range of people they married were all over the place. So a main issue in Paul's ministry was Gentiles who received the gospel, who believed in Jesus, and all of a sudden, their spouse were not believers. And so that was an issue for them that Paul addressed. But that was not an issue in Jesus' ministry, and Jesus did not address it. So when Paul says, not I, but the Lord, he is saying, basically, the Lord has addressed this issue, and I'm going to show you how Jesus has addressed the issue. And when he says, I, but not the Lord, he's saying, look, Jesus did not address this issue, but I'm going to address this issue. It has nothing to do with authority. So when I'm addressing this issue, when I'm giving you the command, it is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ for what Paul is writing is God breathed. It is scripture. It is authoritative. Does everybody understand that? We got this. All right, let's move on. So as Paul's addressing married Christians, what's his instructions to married Christians? Remain married. So what's the ideal situation for people that are married? Remain married. And then he addresses the not-so-ideal situation, the situation of divorce. Now, unfortunately, because we live in a fallen world, divorce is a reality. Real quick for kids, what's divorce? is when mommy and daddy no longer wants to be married. And unfortunately, divorce has become a reality for most of us. Like if we had to take a survey of how many people have experienced divorce in one way or another, whether it was a grandparent, whether it was a parent, or whether it was you yourself or an aunt or an uncle, I think it's almost 100%. Everybody would say, I have experienced the ramifications of divorce in one way or another. And the reality of divorce, it's tragic. It is painful. Not only is it painful between the husband and wife who decides to get a divorce, but it's also painful for the children. It's painful for family members. It's painful for friends because you feel like now we have to pick sides. And no matter how you want to spin it, there's no such thing as a clean divorce. Divorce is always messy. Divorce always hurts. And it seems like the ramifications of divorce is long-lasting. And what we have to understand is not only is divorce a sin, but divorce is also a result of sin. How do I get this? Matthew 19, verse 19. Uh, When the religious leaders came up to Jesus and asked them about a matters of divorce, uh, Jesus says this uh, in Matthew uh, 19, verse 9, He says, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because of the hardness of your hearts. But it was not like that from the beginning. In other words, in the law, there was made a provision for divorce. Why was that provision made? Because it's become a reality of living in a fallen world. It does not make it okay, and Jesus takes that because there's provision made in the law. He's saying the reason why that provision is made is because of the hardness of your heart, because of the sinfulness of your attitude, but that was never the intentions from the very beginning. So what does Jesus mean from the very beginning? When God created marriage, 
between a husband and a wife. The very intentions of marriage was a covenant for a lifetime. Divorce was never in mind until sin entered into the world. And divorce has become a reality for almost, well, let's just say all of us. Let's just be honest. And so when divorce happens, Paul gives instructions. He says you either remain unmarried or you reconcile with your spouse. Now, now the question that we have to ask ourselves, are those the only two options for those who divorce? Well, apparently, according to Paul, yes, if divorce has no biblical grounds. But no, if divorce has biblical grounds. And I think this goes in line to what Jesus taught in Matthew 5.32, where Jesus says, I tell you, whoever divorces his wife except for inappropriate relationships, hint, hint, you guys get that part, and marries another, commits adultery. So in other words, what Jesus says, if there is no biblical grounds for divorce, then there should be no remarriage. And if there is remarriage, there is sin. Now, before we move on, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on here. Is we need to be very careful when we talk about divorce. Because... In our experience with divorce, we feel beaten up, we feel hurt, and sometimes we read the Bible and we want to self-justify, and we feel guilty about it. And one of the things the Bible does not give us is a list of exa- an exhaustive list of reasons for why you can have a divorce. I think it maybe mentions one or twice, that's clear. Uh, We see uh, inappropriate marital affairs is grounds for biblical divorce. Later on in the passage that Paul's going to talk about, physical desertion is grounds for a biblical divorce. So what I don't want to do is I don't want to give you reasons for you to be self-justified in your actions when it comes to divorce. But what I also don't want to do on the other side is this, that if you had a divorce and you get remarried, now you feel like the relationship you're in is in the state of perpetual sin. And the only way for God to forgive you of your sin is more divorce. Like, like that's just a recipe for a disaster. Like, like, and when we talk about divorce, we have a tendency to think about divorce as like the unforgivable sin. Like, if you have a divorce, God will not forgive you. Is that an unforgivable sin? No. Let's say, for example, you found yourself in a divorce. And let's say, for example, you did get remarried. Can the Lord not redeem from it? Can the Lord not take that messy situation that is filled with sin and do something good out of it? So what I don't want to do is go to the two extremes and give you all the reasons to self-justify you in your actions, but I also don't want you to feel so condemned that the only way out is more divorce. It's like just the train wreck of adding sin on top of sin on top of sin, thinking that that is going to fix all of these things. So if you find yourself dealing with the reality of divorce, whether you're in the process of it, whether you've experienced it, whether you you got remarried and that relationship started off wrong, we can admit, yeah, divorce is sin. 
And yes, at times getting remarried is sin. And yes, the Lord can redeem, the Lord can forgive. And Lord Jesus has paid for it in sin. So what do I do? I can confess it. I can repent from it. I can ask the Lord to forgive. I can ask the Lord to take this marriage of where I find myself in and dedicate it to him and say, Lord, can you take this marriage where it started off wrong? Can you forgive us and can you redeem us and can you help us to have a strong marriage that honors you? Is the Lord not good and faithful to forgive you of all of your sins? Can the Lord not take one of the worst relationships that you found yourself into? And again, you never planned it. It just happens and does something incredible in it and through it. Yes, he can. So let's look at the second group of, uh, that, that the Lord addresses. He's now addressing Christians who are married to non-Christians. Look, look at verse 12. Paul says, but I, not the Lord, say to the rest. Okay, in other words, why is Paul using that phrase? Because Jesus did not address it in his ministry context. But Paul is addressing it in his ministry context right now. He says, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce her husband. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to live in peace. Wife, for all you know, you might save your husband. Husband, for all you know, you may save your wife. So the scenario that, that Paul has in mind is not a Christian purposefully marrying a non-Christian. Because Paul addresses in verse 30 and in chapter 7, verse 39, where he says, don't do that. Second Corinthians, do not be unequally yoked. But the situation that Paul has in mind is both were non-believers from when they got married and one received and understood the gospel and surrendered their life to Christ. The other didn't. And so what do you do now? What's the ideal situation? The ideal situation is remain married. Don't change your circumstances. The not-so-ideal situation is if they want out, then let them get out. And Paul does talk about there, there's some benefit of remaining married. He, look at verse 14. He says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy by the husband. Like, like what does Paul mean by that? Remember, as believers, we are declared holy. In other words, the word holy means we've been set apart. So when there is a Christian in the family, that family, in a sense, is set apart by not meaning they automatically become Christians, but their spiritual benefits to that family. And what happens to that family? It is a way through which the word of God can spread because of the Christian in that family. And Paul says, like, stay, because guess what? Who knows? The Lord might use you. And they might receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and he might turn that family around. 
But then he also addresses the not-so-less-ideal situation, saying, but we live in a real world here. But if the non-Christian physically deserts, abandons, and wants out of the marriage, then the Christian should not feel obligated to remain married. Now, if you look at our text, there's, there's, there's two words, separation. Now, in our culture, in our cultural context, separation and divorce are not the same thing. In some states, you have to be legally separated, and then, have, and then you can get a divorce. But in this cultural context of what Paul is addressing, separation and divorce is one and the same thing. Because under Roman law, if you leave your spouse with the intentions of divorce, when you separate, you are as good as divorced. And Paul says if they want out, if they want to separate, then let them go. And what's the reason he gives them? Because Christians are supposed to do what? Look at the second part of of, of 15. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. For a brother or sister is not bound in such case. For God has called you to live in peace. And the Christian Spouse has no assurance of being the human instrument through which God may save the non-Christian spouse. So we briefly talked about it, and now Paul is going to provide a general principle. The principle that all of us find ourselves in different aspects of life. Because again, as Paul's addressing the church in Corinth, he's addressing people that are happily married. He's addressing people that hate their marriage. He's addressing people that want out of their marriage. He's addressing people that are single. He's addressing people that are married to non-believers and are threatening them to leave if they don't abandon Christ. He's addressing all of these people and all of us are looking at scripture and we're like, well, what about me? What about my situation? Well, Paul, Paul now is gonna tell you about your situation and look Look at this general principle here in verse 17. He says this, Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord has assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Was anyone already circumcised when he was called? He should not undo his circumcision. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. Let each one of you remain in the situation in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Don't let it concern you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. For he who has called you by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become a slave of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. So, so notice the general principle that Paul repeats three times, okay? Verse 17, here's the first principle. He says, let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. Then he repeats it in a different way. Look at verse 20. Let each of you remain in the situation in which he was called. And then in verse 24, the same situation. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. So what's the general principle? Stay in the situation the Lord has called you. What does that mean? 
Stay in the situation the Lord has called you. In other words, what has happened in your life, yes, is a result of sin, but is no accident. Because who's behind all of this? God is. He is providentially has worked out for you to be in the situation you find yourself. Do you like that situation? No. Do you want a new situation? Yes. But what is he instructing you to do? Stay in the situation the Lord has called you. Now, in our text, he uses two examples. Both examples we can't relate to because we don't really deal with it. But let me try to, to take that and make it applicable. The two situations he, he addresses is that of circumcision and that of slavery. In other words, when he uses the situation of circumcision, he's kind of talking about your past. Hey, regardless of your past, what do you do? You can't change it. Stay in the situation the Lord has given you. And then when he uses the example of slavery and being free, there were two people in the ancient world, those who were enslaved and those who were free. And what he tells both of them? Stay in the situation the Lord has given you. So in other words, let's, let's make it applicable for us. Any of you single? Here's my advice for you. Stay in a situation the Lord has assigned to you. You can serve the Lord. You can please the Lord by obeying his commands. Any of you kids who want to grow up? Stay in the situation the Lord has assigned to you. You can serve the Lord. You can honor the Lord. You can obey his commands and still be a kid. Any of you married? Happily? Stay in the situation the Lord has assigned to you. I see you, Terrell. Jamie's going to be happy about that. Like, Stay in the situation the Lord has assigned to you. You can please the Lord. You can serve the Lord and obey his commands. Don't raise your hand, but anybody in a not-so-very-good marriage, stay in the situation. Um, just don't do it. Come on. Stay in the situation the Lord has assigned to you. You can please the Lord. You can serve the Lord and obey his commands. Anybody that experienced a divorce, stay in the situation the Lord has assigned to you. You can still serve the Lord, you can still please the Lord, and you can still obey His commands. Anybody of you have a ton of baggage in the past and wish your past would just be erased? Stay in the situation the Lord has assigned to you. You can still serve the Lord and please the Lord. Why? Why can you do that? And here is the gospel principle. Look at verse 23. For you were bought at a price. In other words, for many of us in our culture, our identity is wrapped up in what we do. So for children, what's your identity? I'm in the first grade, the second grade, the third grade. That, that becomes your identity. If you're married, what's your identity? I'm married. If you're divorced, what's your identity, unfortunately? I'm divorced. If my spouse died, what becomes your identity? Yeah, I'm a widow. These things become our identity. If you're upper class and you make tons of money, what's your identity? If you're homeless, what's your identity? That becomes your identity. 
I don't think we have any slaves here, though some of you feel like you work like a slave, but that becomes your identity. But Paul is saying, no, for the Christian, what is your primary identity? Your primary identity is that you were bought at a price. And because you were bought at a price, you belong to him, which means now you can stay in the situation that he has assigned to you by which he's called you, which means you can please the Lord. You can serve the Lord and obey his commands. Now, I love what Paul has done here in the text because Paul takes this principle of you were bought at a price and that you belong to Jesus and he applies the principle to two groups of people differently. Look at how he applies this. To the slave, what does he tell the slave? He tells the slave, look, slave, you were bought at a price, which means you belong to Jesus. And if that's your primary identity, that means you are free. You're no longer a slave. You are free. But then he takes the very same principle and he applies it to a wealthy person, a free person. And he says, hey, listen here, man. You were bought at a price. And because your identity is wrapped up in Christ and you belong to Christ, what are you now? You are a slave to Christ. So by him adding this identity of being bought to Christ differently to the person who is enslaved in the real world and the person who is free, why is he doing that? And the reason I think he is doing it, because he is showing us that because of our identity in Christ, regardless of our situation, we have equal standing before God. No situation is inherently better than another when it comes to one standing before the Lord. In other words, what that means is this. Let's just be honest. Some of you guys have gone through a divorce, and there's a season where you feel like you are now an inferior Christian. And you know what Paul is saying? Nothing can change your standing before God. God does not see you as a divorced person. He does not see you as a good husband or a good wife. He sees you as holy and perfect and as righteous. Why? Not because of your performance, but because of Christ's performance on your behalf. In other words, by him taking the principle of applying it, we've been bought at a price, and applying it differently to our situations, he is saying, nothing can change your standing before the Lord. And if that is true... You can stay in the situation the Lord has assigned to you. Don't beat yourself up. Don't try to self-justify yourself. Don't try to pursue sin. Because remember, you were bought at a price. You belong to Him. You're either enslaved to Him or you are free in Him. Both are true. And no situation is inherently better. So, so let's do application here. Kids, you've been doing really good. Two applications here, and then I'll be done. Very simple. The first application is this. Value marriage in its proper place. The first thing we can learn uh, from both Paul addressing married people and those who are married to non-Christians is what are they supposed to do? 
value marriage in its proper place. In other words, we need to value marriage as a gift from God. If he gives it to you, then you ought to receive it gratefully and you are to steward it faithfully. But what we must not do in marriage is idolize marriage or devalue marriage. How do we idolize marriage? We idolize marriage thinking that marriage will fulfill the longings of our hearts. And if you're married, what do you say? Nope, don't do that. How do we devalue marriage? We devalue marriage by willy-nilly just divorcing based on selfish desires. Value marriage in its proper place. It is a gift from the Lord. Faithfully see it as a gift and faithfully steward it as a gift. The second thing is this. If you're taking notes, be content to stay where God has called you. Be content to stay where God has called you. Why? You were bought with a price. You belong to Christ. That is your primary identity. Not your marital status, not your social status, not your age grade status. The fact that you were bought at a price. And let's just be honest, like I'm preaching more to myself. Um, How many of us are really content in life? No, we're not, because we always long for something better, something greater, different circumstances that will make our lives a little better. Single people dream about getting married, thinking it'll make their life better. Married people dream about not, get, be, not being married or getting out of marriage, thinking it will make their life better just to get free from the marital responsibilities. Some people dream of having better jobs, living in bigger houses, driving nice cars. And it's not necessarily sinful of wanting our lives to change, but it becomes sinful when it consumes us. And, it, and our entire lives revolve around that. And Paul gives us the instructions. He says, stay where God has called you. In the, in the letter to the Philippians, he says twice, I've learned to be content. So in other words, contentment is not just something, it's not something you have, it's something you learn. And how do you learn it? Stay in the place where God has called you. And then he promises us, he says, godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, pursuing godliness in the season of life that the Lord has assigned to you, there will be great gain. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of marriage. Lord, help us to see marriage as a gift. Help us to steward this gift faithfully. Uh, Lord, for those of us who are married, you know the situation of our marriage. Lord, can you help us to cultivate it? Can you help us to see the value in it? And can you help us to steward faithfully? Lord, for those marriages who are struggling, can you bring healing? Can you uh, help us to reconcile? For those who have divorced or are in the process of a divorce, Lord, can you redeem from it? And Lord, can you help all of us to stay in the situation that you have assigned to us? Lord, our situation, regardless of how good or how bad, is no accident. 
Well, you have allowed that situation in our lives and you've given it to us for a reason. And Lord, can you help us to learn to be content by staying it, by trusting you, serving you, and obeying your commands. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.